Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. On my right is the ever-expanding great library of RPGs and my grognard files. And here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll, uh, I'll just get a tap. Ah, oh, well. This is a rare occurrence. She's appeared as the co-host of 1980's Saturday Night Quiz Show 321, where the contestants could win a mini-metro or a bin, depending on their ability to unlock cryptic clues smuggled into eloquently convoluted linguistic puzzles. This episode is all about the new Leoness RPG that's been released by the design mechanism this month. I know it appears a bit off-brand to be talking about a new game, but back off with the pitchforks and the torches, as this is a game with a nostalgic resonance. Jack Vance was my favourite author back in the day, and Leoness in particular was a trilogy that I loved, and until my early 20s, I would read again and again every year. I've been enthusiastic about this project since it was announced and I was lucky enough to run a demonstration game at UK Games Expo 2019, Cuddiford's Stipule, which resulted in a special thanks from the design mechanism in the front of the new book. I know. The Leoness trilogy, comprising of Soldron's Garden, 1983, The Green Pearl, 1985, and Madoc, 1989, tells the story of the callous and ambitious King Casimir and his torment over a prophecy that he is to be usurped by his grandson. It's an imaginative story of intrigue, cruelty, strange magic and eccentric characters. And if the conclusion seems a little bit disappointing, it's because there's a sense that we didn't want it to end. I wanted to live with these characters forever. Now, finally, thanks to this game, I can. Vance is an underappreciated author. Despite his multiple awards and prolific output, his impact on gaming has been immense. He's an Appendix N author that Gygax acknowledged was the source of the magic system for D&D and the rogue character class was based on Kugel. Pelgrane Press came into being thanks to the Dying Earth role-playing game. Goodman Games are producing another Dying Earth game based on the Dungeon Crawl Classics engine. Lawrence Whitaker from the Design Mechanism joins us in the room of role-playing rambling to discuss his formative years in role-playing and the production of Leoness and some of the design choices that they made. At Daily Dwarf from Twitter has written a great essay that I'll read about some of the literary worlds 
that were recreated in the magazine during its heyday. Breakfast in the Ruins is a Moorcock-flavoured podcast that's presented by Andrew Stimbot 5000 Stimpson, and he's provided an explanation of the first game he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. My co-host and sidekick Blythe joined me to face the Games Master screen where we discuss Vancey and gaming. I'll be back at the end with some parish news. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. I'm in a virtual room of role-playing rambling with games designer, publisher and fan favourite Lawrence Whitaker. Hello, Loz. Hello. Hope everyone's keeping healthy, safe and sane. So I'm speaking to you across the uh, airways. Where, where are you located nowadays, Loz? I, I am in Ontario in Canada, southern Ontario, probably about uh, an hour and a half east of Toronto. And uh, by your accent, you didn't always live in uh, Toronto. Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm a Yorkshireman by birth. Um, right. So it's a long convoluted story about how I ended up here. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get onto that at some point. What we always start these uh, interviews with, uh, Lars, is just asking people, how did you start in role-playing? What did you play and who were you playing with? The first exposure I had to role-playing was Dungeons & Dragons, like like everybody else. Um, but it, it, it wasn't immediately that. I read an article in, uh, I think it was a, a Sunday supplement, probably the Telegraph or the Express or something like that. And it was about these new kinds of games that didn't have boards, didn't have winners, could go on for, for days and days. And it quite intrigued me. And uh, sure enough, they had the the, the typical pictures of uh, the old Grenadier miniatures set up in a, a sort of a dungeon. And um, being a big fan of Moorcock and Lord of the Rings, it, it pressed all the right buttons. So I sort of tried to make my own version of that with uh, with Britain's knights and and things. Um, but that really wasn't a role playing game. It's just me messing around my my proper first exposure to any kind of proper role playing was a solo tunnels and trolls dungeon in a magazine called the gamer mm. written by ken andre and i played the hell out of that and it was fantastic you got to create a character play it and there were different permutations that you could go through and i i really enjoyed that and that was really my first introduction to, to role playing so i always blame ken andre for for everything that, that kind of came to pass after that. But my, my first proper role-playing game was uh, Basic D&D, the uh, Purple Box. I've still got it sitting on my bookshelves to this day. And uh, so you got solo games in. Who were you playing with then? So when you opened up, up that uh, first what? box of D&D? I, I started with my brother. Uh, I think I was about 15 at the time. So he was about 10 uh, completely different interests to me. He, he kind of he, he got it and enjoyed it, and he got one of his friends involved. Um, so you know, I was GMing games at home for for my brother and one of his pals and a few of of, uh, of his friends. And then at school, there was a, a, a group of us in the same year. Um, I was I was dungeon mastering for them, and uh, there were probably about three or four D and D groups that were playing at the time. Right. And uh, were you writing your own stuff or were you playing uh, pre-written stuff? Uh, 
I, I started writing my own stuff pretty early. And mm. uh, as I think with, with all fledgling dungeon masters, it, it really was a, a very kind of competitive element, you know, how, how can I get the gold dragon in at the end? And will they survive this trap? And uh, ha, 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 but they don't realize there's a doppelganger in the party, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it was great for me. It's, you know, that the, you really can't beat a good old-fashioned honest dungeon crawl. And uh, that's what we did. And it, it was lots and lots of fun to do that. But yeah, I, I wrote most of my own stuff. Um, I didn't have much pocket money, so I didn't really go out and buy lots of pre-written modules. I think I had, uh, I obviously have Keep on the Borderlands from the D&D box set. I got Palace of the Silver Princess and probably two or three others, but I tended to write my own. I've always had a pretty fertile imagination and never any shortage of stories to come up with. And uh, what did you move on to from D&D? D&D moved on to Traveller. Um, I, was, I was interested in science fiction as well, and you know, Star Wars was, was out at that time, and Empire Strikes Back and Blake 7. So I was, I was desperate to try and sort of emulate the space opera kind of thing, which Traveller really didn't do at that time. Mm. So the, the forays into Traveller weren't all that successful. It, it was kind of a bit boring compared with D&D because it was very much about the economics of running a starship and uh you know you, you you didn't have blaster rifles you know if you were lucky you got a laser carbine you know it tended to be traditional slug throwers there were no lightsabers you know <laughs> so it, it it was kind of a bit of a disappointment and we moved on to stormbringer mm-hmm. and that became sort of my my big my big love as a, as a game system and i I got Stormbringer, I think, around 1981, 82, when it uh, it first came out. I'd seen the uh, review of it in White Dwarf, and being a big Moorcock fan, it was a, it was a much a must buy for me. And I sort of had to save up to be able to go out and buy it. But yes, that was uh, that that was my my next big thing. And really, I didn't look back from Stormbringer. I don't think I went back to playing Dungeons and Dragons um, once I discovered basic role playing and uh, the Chaosium system. Yeah. that was powering their games. And uh, Ken St. Andre again as well. And Ken St. Andre again, yeah. It's It's been an ongoing connection. And when I, I met him a few years ago for the first time, I, I gave him chapter and verse on what an effect he's had uh, <laughs> on my life and how this is still all his fault. So. Yeah. So Stormbring is interesting because uh, that was one of the games that we um, were very much into. Um, and I think part of the thrill of that was not only... Um, creating Moorcock's uh, worlds, but also it seemed, because um, the, the other world we played in was Glorantha, it felt more of a, a world that you could invent and allowed you to have more fluidity in uh, stories. Did you, did you find that? Yeah, very much. Um, the fact that you had a, a ready-made world in the Young Kingdoms, it was kind of sketched in partly in the books and then kind of elaborated on in... In, in the rule book, even though it wasn't really that accurate in some places, um, it was still evocative enough to help fire imagination. And um, I had two or three really long running Stormbringer campaigns that just sort of built on um, what was found in the novels, but then really developing stories of, of, of the characters that we have there. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely helped that there was some grounding in a, a fictional universe outside of your own imagination. And how did you cope with the legendary um, 
imbalance of characters did you did, did you encounter that in your ah we didn't care yeah, that yeah. Had it to the no, nobody cared it was uh the, the, the typical party that i think everybody had was there was always a melnibanian or pantangian sorcerer that could kick the shit out of anything that got thrown at you <laughs> somebody always wanted to play a beggar just because they were such good fun and uh it, it all added to the enjoyment it was simple it was easy it was fun and, and actually it really did sort of reflect i think moorcock's fiction it was very much about the underdog very much about people that are on the fringes of society and that kind of gelled rather nicely i think yeah yeah we didn't care about the game balance i and i i understand that you moved fairly quickly towards writing for um role-playing as well so how did you make that leap from being a, a player to writing and contributing <laughs> I think I sent a couple of uh, things into White Dwarf that were probably quite rightly rejected as, <laughs> as not being good enough. Um, but I eventually, I'd, I'd been running my Stormbringer campaign for about four or five years. And I thought, you know, some of this stuff, it's, it's, it's pretty good. And when I looked at some of the adventures that were being published, like everybody, my God, I can do better. You know, my, my campaign's much better, much cooler, better characters, better monsters, better magic. So I, I sent uh, Chaosium a, a, a letter and um, some samples of my work. And uh, that turned into them uh, inviting me to contribute to a campaign book they were putting together, which became Rogue Mistress. Um, when it first started out, it was in a very different format. And uh, they invited me to contribute a scenario, which I did. Um, that was probably rejected by Greg Stafford, and that sort of triggered my my meeting with with Greg and a, a friendship that lasted right up until his death. Um, but that that was kind of my first foray. Even Chaosium rejected me in the beginning, but it, it made me go back, refine it, take on board the uh, the critique that he'd given, and um, eventually uh, the the work was was accepted. So my first published work was in the Rogue Mistress campaign. Ah, oh, right. So just tell us a little bit more about that, because um, we've heard this uh, legendary uh, thing of to be Gregged. So what was that experience of being getting editorial yeah. advice from from Greg? That's more to do with Glorantha. Right, um, okay. He never, never, ever gregged me over uh, any Stormbringer stuff. Uh, right. <laughs> focused on Glorantha. Uh, <laughs> so but probably later when I started working with Mongoose and, and, was, and was writing for the Glorantha, that, that probably happened, although I don't think it was that egregious with, uh, with the Mongoose stuff. So that, so that contribution to um, Rogue Mistress, that was your first um, published work, was it? And uh, how did you develop from there? I developed from there. Actually, I've missed out a step. The, oh, right. uh, the, the first thing that I was actually invited to write for by Chaosium was for Ringworld. I sent in some ideas for Stormbringer, but I also sent in some ideas for Ringworld. I was a big Larry Niven fan. And... Um, I was invited to contribute to a, a campaign pack called The City in the Jungle. And they sent me a massive folio of all this background stuff. It, it was quite detailed things that they had. Uh, it's kind of a playbook for, for all the writers. You know, this is where the game's going to be set. These are the people involved. Here are the setups of civilizations. Write something around this. So I wrote a scenario um, based... Uh, based in this area of the ring world, sent that in and heard nothing. Um, after a few months, my manuscript was sent back to me 
by Sherman Khan, who was the, the editor in charge of that project, with a very apologetic letter saying, sorry to have to send this back to you. The stuff is great. We want to publish it, but we've lost the license to publish anything by, by, um, by Larry Niven. Uh, and so the Ringworld game itself was pulled. Uh, oh. before anything could really be released. Then the Stormbringer stuff came after that. So uh, I, it, it didn't make me lose heart. If anything, it kind of galvanized me. That clearly, they were prepared to entertain, you know, some unknown Brit that yeah. was, was keen on writing. And uh, and they they were good enough to take a chance on me. And so did you play Ringworld? Did it come from your own um, experience of playing games? Oh, game? oh yeah, yeah. We, we, again, we had... Uh, long-running Ringworld campaign, uh, me and some friends from school. And we used to alternate uh, Ringworld, uh, Stormbringer, and Bushido, actually. And already, Lois, you've mentioned that you very much got the literary side of science fiction and fantasy, with uh, Moorcock and Tolkien. So we need to talk about Vance and uh, Jack Vance and what role he played in uh, inspiring you as a as a role player. Um, I wouldn't say that Vance necessarily inspired me directly as a role player. He certainly inspired me with characterization and plotting. I mean, he's a master of both. If you read any of the uh, the Dying Earth uh, series and especially the Kugel stories, he's a master of setting up very complicated, very clever plots that you can't quite see how it's all connecting together, populated by really memorable, quirky characters um, in such a clever way. And then he wraps it all in his wonderful command of language. And that's what really attracted me. Now, I'm I'm nowhere near as eloquent as Jack Vance. Um, I'm nowhere near as good a plotter. And I'm nowhere near as good as characterization. But I think those three elements kind of rubbed off on me and they they informed a lot of the way that I started to write things and that would probably be around 1985 86 when I first discovered the dying earth stories I knew of them from from before that but uh, when I first sat down and read um, Kugel's saga and eyes of the overworld uh, that really sort of opened my eyes to to that style and I think that probably had quite a, a big influence on how I started to write lots of very quirky characters Um, very plot-driven rather than um, sandboxy things. And that's kind of how I've I've continued to develop the work that I do. Yeah. I think at that time, um, Grafton did a... published them in the UK didn't they as uh, very attractive books at the time and I think that's how I discovered them at that period um, uh, so they brought out the Dying Earth series and then eventually uh, Leoness came out and uh, did you read that at the time that it was uh, published? I think I read uh, The Green Pearl not long after it was published so I read them out of sequence um, and I came back to them only a few years ago and uh, that's what really sort of spurred the journey that we now have with the Leoness game that we're we're publishing. But uh, uh, yeah, I I had the uh, the original Grafton imprints from the UK, yeah. and the, the first one that I had was uh, was Kugel's Saga. Then I went and found Eyes of the Overworld and Rialto the Marvelous. And you know, I was Rialto the Marvelous was really difficult to get hold of, yeah, yeah. and I finally found it in a second hand bookshop in um i think in hastings can't remember why i was in hastings but uh, my wife and i dropped into the second hand bookshop and i found this holy grail i've been looking for it for ages and of course just happened to be i wasn't really looking for the book at the time I wasn't hunting for it it just jumped out of the shelves at me 
that was a joyous day. <laughs> and for those people who are listening, if not read uh, Leoness, how would you summarise it for people? It's a combination of the Fairy Queen, Spencer's the Fairy Queen, um, traditional European fantasy, and Game of Thrones. Yes. And that's really doing a disservice to, to Vance. It, it really is. Um, but to for people that aren't familiar with it, but are more familiar with, with George R. R. Martin, that's really what it comes across as. I mean, the, the, the political machinations that occur throughout the Leoness saga are exactly up there with what happens in Game of Thrones. You have an ambitious, ruthless king. You've got people scheming to get one up on other people. You've got some some quite horrible violence and tragedies happening to all the major characters all the way through. Bad things happen to good people. Um, there aren't always happy endings. And so he was actually doing what George R.R. R. Martin did before George R.R. R. Martin was doing it. Um, but of course, you've then got this very whimsical side of it, which is the way the, the, the magician's stories kind of unfold in parallel with the main characters. Um, and then the stories around the fairies. And you, you have very capricious, mischievous fairies with their own agendas, kind of toying with people's emotions and, uh, and setting things up in, in quite baroque ways. Um, so all those elements combined give you a very, very different kind of, of fantasy experience. And I think Leoness as a fantasy trilogy is massively underrated. It, it certainly is uh, underrated. And it's interesting that you said that you started with um, The Green Pearl, because I think the opening 15 pages of The Green Pearl are some of the best bit of fantasy writing you'll ever experience, I think. With, with the fisherman and his wife and the boats and the pearl and the way it corrupts them. Yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, that is a, a snapshot of um, uh, Vance's style, I think that kind of uh, casual cruelties and um, exotic um, sounding people and also the mundane mixed together. I think uh, it's a a great piece of writing. When when I've explained to people that it's a very distinctive setting for a role-playing game, um, I've never been able to put my finger on what makes it distinctive. But you, of course, have had to do that and codify it and turn it into... Um, a role-playing game so mm-hmm. just talk us through the process of how you how you do that the books do a lot of it for you what vance is very very good at doing is creating very colorful characters mm-hmm. that aren't black and white um there are some clearly cut bad guys in the leoness saga like fodkar filiot and and casimir and torquil um but they're very very well drawn you know, they they have their own agendas their own motivations and really i find that if you if you look at how vance has put things together and the kinds of characters he creates and you expand on that then that helps do a lot of the the heavy lifting for you um i can't speak for the other writers in in the leoness book there were four or five of us involved um but from from my own point of view um getting into the heart of it was sitting down and writing about one of the unexplored areas from the novels i i took two two of the kingdoms in leoness blaylock and Kadaz. Actually, three, I took the island of Scola as well. And what I did was very much what I did when I was writing for Mongoose and the, the Elric 
material there. Pick an area, read about it from the novels, and then sort of expand what you've found in those books. Expand the characters, create more like them, or people that would fit with the characters that appear in the books, and kind of expand on what the canon already gives you. Um, and from that, adventures and ideas and potential plot hooks and weird situations just kind of naturally flow. Um, I try not to plan any of that too much. I start writing, um, thinking about what I've read and just let everything develop from there. Um, so that's how I approach it. A different example is the way that uh, Mark Shirley uh, approached some of his writing that he did in the Leon Ness game, and that was to actually develop some of the tropes that Jack Vance has in his stories. There's always a village or a, a small town. It's always got a tavern. The landlord of that tavern has always got some kind of agenda. Um, the village itself always has some kind of strange quirk. So what Mark did was produce a series of lovely, lovely random tables that will let you generate a village with a town and a weird landlord in a few dice rolls, and you can get an entire campaign out of that. And we did just that when we played, uh, play-tested Leoness. I got my my players to each roll on the village table, so they created the village's name, they created what was weird about the village, they they created the, the tavern, and what was weird about the landlord and all this stuff, and I just spun a story straight out of that. And so I think if you can capture the playful essence of Jack Vance and the serious things about his characters and his plots, that's that's half of the job done. And then it's then kind of building up and, and filling in on the blanks. And uh, we need to talk about food as well, because, of course, one of the elements oh, wait, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> food, food takes an important part, because I think what uh, Vance does with his uh, worlds is create a culture that is a living culture, isn't it? And part of the way he expresses that is through his exotic food. So you've introduced that into the game, haven't you? Yeah, it wouldn't be complete without the, the Vancian meal generator. That's absolutely right. And it, it follows a very, very similar format, whether it's in Leoness, the Dying Earth settings, the, the Demon Prince's setting, you, you name it, he lovingly describes the food that people eat. And it's always something weird cooked in a piquant sauce or a certain kind of thing or, or or braised i don't know braised eel bladders with the side <laughs> serving of x y or z you know wolf nipple chips or <laughs> jaguar's earlobes to quote monty python uh, but it's, it, it, if you can if you can create something that will allow you to have your players sit down and have this bizarre meal then you are definitely capturing something about Vance. So I came up with the Vancey meal generator, and it's really just a series of random tables to decide what you've been served, roughly how it's been cooked, what it's been accompanied by, and what sort of sauce it's it's been presented in. So you can get some very very bizarre combinations, which huge amounts of fun to put it together. As soon as you do that with uh, players, they're immediately there, aren't they? They're in the in the world. Yeah, they're, and they're invested. In yeah. yeah. Suddenly they, they they care about how that, that um, eel bladder pie is going to taste. <laughs> and uh, yeah, how much they're gonna pay for it or whether the landlord's gonna rip them up rip them off for it. The other um term 
in uh, in role playing that we hear very often is this idea of Vansian magic, because mm-hmm. um, famously um, Gary Gygax took that as the inspiration. But of co- I, I've been lucky enough to see a preview of the Leoness book. You actually point out in the book that there is no real consistency to the to uh, magic within uh, Vance. And um, so, how did you go about doing that? Because I think one of the high points of this game is how you deal with magic. It, it took a long time. It was probably the longest uh, and most difficult part of the book to write. I didn't write it. Pete Nash, my partner in crime, was responsible for that. He's he's brilliant with with detailed game mechanics like that. And what Pete did was he went right back to the source material, and he didn't start with Leoness. He started with the Dying Earth, especially Rialto the Marvelous. Um, he went through every um, story in the Dying Earth saga, made a note of what magic was being mentioned and made rough notes on how it was being presented. And what he found was that there were certain common threads that kind of go through all, all the stories more so in, in the Rialto sequence where magic is very much the focus. It's a, a bunch of, of feuding uh, magicians at the end of the world that uh, they're all trying to outdo each other in various really bizarre situations. But there was, there are certain consistencies and certain themes and threads that are quite logical and, and flow through those books. How they're applied isn't necessarily consistent, and he does contradict himself in certain places. But, you know, he's a writer, and the magic in the books is designed to serve the story. You know, he wasn't developing a magic system for a role-playing game. But what Pete did was work out where those consistencies were, uh, where the inconsistencies were, and how he could then sort of work around them, and how you would replicate that in a game series. Uh, or, or in in game mechanics, um, he then did exactly the same with Leoness, where there are some very clear cut spells, but equally there are lots of sort of examples of magic where it's not quite explained how a certain effect came about. Um, there's a spell that Shimrod, one of the the main characters, casts to hide some some um, magical apparatus where he folds it in seven different ways and it gets compressed to the size of a brick and he puts a charm on it so it's under observation. Now, he doesn't explain how that... He simply says that Shimrod cast the XYZ spell and it got folded up and no one could now find it. So we have to work out how would you put together a spell that would do that. Um, the other interesting part in the Dying Earth stories is the use of Sandestins, which are also used and referred to in Leoness. Um, it's very helpfully explained in one of the Rialto stories that when a magician casts a spell, he's not actually casting a spell. What he's doing is giving very detailed, specific instructions to this magical creature called a Sandestin, who then actually goes and does the work for you. So all he's doing is saying to a summoned creature, a bit like a demon, uh, make that thing invisible for me, please. And if you do, I might let you go next week, or I'll give you a tidbit, or you'll get some praise. Uh, That's really how magic works. And of course, the instructions are very long and convoluted and complicated and take up vast amounts of your memory. Um, So that's what we did with Sandestin Magic. We we worked out what sort of abilities were... um, displayed in the Leoness stories and in some of the Dying Earth stories, um, worked out the rules about how some destinies would work, how you'd coerce them into getting what you want them to do, how many abilities they might have, what could happen if things go wrong, and then build the game mechanics around that. And uh, 
as well as that, you've got, of course, the fairy magic, which uh, yeah. behaves uh, very differently. And what's wonderful very, about very yeah, what's wonderful about the um, uh, the fairy magic is that is, is the names of the different spells. Uh, that that it, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I've done a game, a, a play test of this, and uh, you know, the casting imp spring tinkle at all is uh, yeah. a great moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's one that's taken directly from the books. And he, uh, fairy magic is a lot simpler. It's a lot more mischievous. It's it's very much about this spell affects this in this way right here, right now. Whereas sandestine magic are things. It's more like enchantments and altering the fabric of the universe to achieve a certain end. Um, the the fairy magic is very much small, little, not necessarily utilitarian spells, although they can be used in that way but really there for comedic effect or, or to inconvenience somebody else. And he, Vance gives the, the, the few spells where he does them these very evocative, um, almost childish nursery rhyme kind of, and I don't mean childish in a bad way, but sort of nursery rhyme like, like names such as the imp spring tingle toe, also known as goblins hopscotch. And that immediately just gives you an idea of what the spell does. So, Pete, again, had huge amounts of fun in working out different magical effects that emulated what we see in the books and then giving them some truly Vancean, ridiculous-sounding names. Um, there's a lot of in-jokes in the spells as well, um, which uh, anybody that has a British sense of humour will probably spot quite easily. Um, some are going to be a bit less obvious, but uh, the, the, there's a lot of humour in there, which there is in Vance as well, all the way through. Yes, yeah, and again in the playtest that certainly came out the uh, it, sort of whimsy uh, to it, and uh, that, that yeah. players enjoyed. Yeah, I think um, they enjoyed finding uh, some kumquats that had um, <laughs> <laughs> some unexpected. Uh, That's right. Yes. 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 <laughs> and so, what's the what's the plans for uh, Leoness? The what stage is it at and uh, when can we expect to see it? Probably by the end of the month, the end of April, it will be ready to be released to an unsuspecting or suspecting public. And to my surprise and astonishment, we've brought it in more or less on on schedule. I think when we first announced that we'd be releasing the Leoness role-playing game, I said late 2019, early 2020 as release date. Well, I think we're still pretty early into 2020 myself. So we've done pretty well, especially given the scale of of the book. I mean, I I didn't, when we first announced it, think it was going to be 500 pages long, Um, but it is. And that's a testament to the efforts that were put in by the team of writers behind it. Yeah, and that team of writers, there'll be some uh, familiar names. Um, I noticed yes, that. Uh, Dave Morris I, is on there. Yeah. Dave, Dave Morris is involved. He's contributed the summary of the, the Leoness saga. Um, so if you haven't read the books, it gives you a good overview of what's in there. Um, he's contributed the chapters describing the city of Is and the, the Scar, who are mm. some of the, uh, the, the, the bad guys in the Leoness saga. Yeah. Uh, but we've also got uh, Mark Shirley, uh, who's written a lot of Ars Magica material, and he's written several supplements for for, for me, for Mithras, um, myself, uh, Pete Nash, I've mentioned, and Dominic Mooney, who's is probably not as familiar or well-known as some of the other names. Um, but Dom has done a fair amount of work for, for Traveller and Bits, uh, the, the British Traveller 
society and uh, he did some work on power projection traveler supplement but he's a big vance fan and so i invited him to come and contribute to this and so will the um because it, it is people should be aware that it's a self-contained game isn't it you don't need mithras to to, to run nope. it no nope. why did you make that decision i've noticed a trend in gaming over the past few years which is going back to more and more self-contained games with with settings um we went through a, a long period where having a core rule book that you then hang supplements from was kind of the the model but there's been a shift back to self-contained games um I think there are strengths for both approaches. Uh, but I thought that Leoness actually deserved to be a standalone game. First of all, the, the, the setting itself warrants it. And I think that um, there are a lot of, of Jack Vance fans out there that will have heard of his name that are Dungeons & Dragons players, um, uh, maybe have played some of Pelgrane's work from, mm-hmm. from The Dying Earth and so forth, and will be looking for a self-contained game. Um, if they think, ah, I've got to buy that Mithras book, which is 400 pages, and then this this 200-page Leoness supplement and make them work together, I think I'll just pass. Uh, I think that's a, a danger. So we decided to do a, a standalone game because it would have a, have a broader appeal. But I think also the market has shifted in the way that it's approaching things like this. So we will see how successful it is. I, I certainly hope it will uh, it will attract the kind of sales I think it deserves. Is it your intention to support it with campaign material? Because, of course, I've, uh, I've got Colourfoot's uh, stipule that you uh, actually did mm-hmm. for the playtest uh, for last year's UK get- Games Expo that I, uh, I ran. Yeah. But is, it, is there plans to create other adventures for it? Yeah, I'm working on one right now, which is called In High Dungeon. And I should finish the writing on that this week. Um, the the idea is that we will support the game with expansions for the Forest of Tantraval. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in itself is an entire setting. Um, lots of miles you can get from that. Uh, and we can focus on places like Leoness Town, City of Is, Avalon, Trossinet. We, we could take any, there's so much stuff that you could spend, you, you could just dedicate all your time to doing nothing but Leoness supplements if you wished. Um, Obviously, things compete for priority and attention, but we certainly intend to support the game. And the first thing that we, we already have, Codifoot Scipule, as, as you, you've said, which came out before we released the rules, but we the rules were finished when, when I wrote that. Um, yeah, there, there will definitely be uh, an adventure that's released very soon after the Leoness core rules come out, and there's already Codifoot there to, to help support it. Um, and we will develop more stuff probably next year. What will be first? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that will be something that I discuss with with the writing team, and we'll we'll come up with uh, the ideal kind of support material. Thank you for that, Lars. And uh, we're going to come back next time to face the Games Master screen. Thank you very much. Ooh. White Dwarf. Author, author. Science fiction and fantasy authors were a clear and obvious influence on the genesis and the development of role-playing games, so much so that some of the heavy hitters, Tolkien, Lovecraft, Michael Moorcock, had whole games specifically designed around their fiction. But there were others, many others, who, if they didn't get their own game back in the 1980s, 
at least inspired one or two articles in the pages of White Dwarf. This is their story. Described as a wilderness scenario, but really just a brief setting description with some accompanying monster stats, A Place in the Wilderness by Lou Pulsifer in issue 6 brought Jack Vance's The Dragon Masters to D&D. White Dwarf was still finding its feet at this point. The article was very brief, leaving the reader with a few more questions and answers. Lou signed off with the suggestion, For more background information, I suggest you read the book, available in paperback. Nevertheless, it did introduce Jack Vance's different categories of human-bred dragons, with evocative names like Termagant, Long-Horned Murderer, and Jugger. The idea of dragons that could wield weapons rather than relying on fangs and claws provided a nice spin on the D&D standard. Added flavour was provided by some excellent accompanying illustrations by Polly Wilson, drawn in a style that always reminded me of John Tenniel's illustrations for Lewis Carroll. The long-horned murderer in particular, a goggle-eyed dragon with an array of vicious spikes protruding from its snout and chest, looked like a beast that would give the Jabberwocky a run for its money. Lou Pulsifer returned in issue 16 with Chronicle Monsters. Ah yes, the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant is a love-it-or-hate-it marmite of fantasy fiction. Stephen Donaldson's tales of an isolated leper from our world who is trapped in a fantasy land and cast as its unwilling saviour continues to sharply divide opinion of the Grog Squad. I'm an unabashed fan. I'm willing to forgive it, the at times garbled verbiage and adherence to high fantasy tropes, because for me, this saga tells a compelling story, exploring themes of isolation, corruption, faith and redemption. Donaldson challenges the reader with an extremely unlikable protagonist, yet by anchoring the fantastical elements with a character from our real world, I think we can more readily grasp Covenant's desperation, the urgency that drives him. As an aside, I find it interesting that a real-world hero transported into an unfamiliar setting, which is a recurring idea in fantastical fiction, that goes back to at least as far as Mark Twain, isn't often handled in role-playing games. I know that the second edition of Hero's Journey has the errant archetype for dealing with this, but I'm not aware of any others. Anyway, back to White Dwarf. Lou Pulsifer focused on translating Donaldson's monsters, stating, it would be confusing to try and duplicate the Lord's powers in D&D terms. Hold that thought for a moment. We covered the Urviles in some detail in episode 6, the AD&D grog pod, but Lou's article also gave us Cave Whites, the Immortal Bloodguard, akin to D&D monks, and most notably the Ravers, the incorporeal lieutenants of Lord Fowl. Yes, there is a Dark Lord in the books, but he's a good one, if you know what I mean, who possess others to wreak havoc. While their various powers were put into D&D terms, 
I felt like something was missing. Lou didn't really address the lasting corruption inflicted on an individual by the raver's possession. As written here, they didn't seem fearsome enough to me. These, after all, were the creatures responsible for the slaughter of the giants at Sea Reach, a sequence of astonishingly bavorous savagery in the books. When Donaldson wants to put his characters through the ringer, he really doesn't pull any punches. Overall, though, a fine article. Andrew Finch obviously didn't pay any heed to Lou Pulsifer's earlier warning, as in issue 21 he gave us Law of the Land, a look at Donaldson's Law Lords in D&D. The Lords were portrayed as a combination of magic users and clerics, and there were some nice ideas presented here, particularly regarding Lords combining their powers when casting spells, and their abilities to inspire companions in combat. I think it slightly missed the point though, as in the books, the Lords are defined as much by what they can't do as what they can, by their powerlessness in the face of evil. They're locked in a struggle, trying and failing to understand and capture the powers of the old Lords, long since gone from memories. It's this that feeds Donaldson's themes of desperation and loss and cast them ultimately as rather tragic figures in the face of Lord Fowl's might. Difficult to capture in their game though, I suppose. Andrew Finch's treatment of Radamaril and the higher brands, magic users with the powers to manipulate stone and wood respectively, worked much better in D&D. These were useful for any campaign setting and could add an interesting new dimension to both underground and wilderness adventures. In the first White Dwarf I ever bought, number 26, in amongst all the other mind-blowing articles, character conjuring looked at lizard men as player characters. Roger E. Moore and Michael Brown's justification rested primarily on Andre Norton's novel Quag Keep, set in Gary Gygax city of Greyhawk, where one of the party is a lizard man named Gulf. Hang on a minute, say that again. A book set in Greyhawk, an actual D&D novel. This was almost too much for my 11-year-old self to take in. I had to own that book. Only problem was, none of my local bookshops had a copy. It took me several years to track it down. I eventually found an import copy. I knew it was an import as the edges of the pages were stained bright yellow. I could barely believe it. I finally owned Quag Keep. But then I made a fatal mistake. I actually read it. Oh dear. Now, I know Andre Norton is a well-respected writer a favourite of many in the Grog Squad, listed as an inspirational reading in Appendix N of the Dungeon Master's Guide. But, well, let's just say I suspect she wrote Quag Keep for the paycheck. It's really not very good. Look on this as a service. I read it, so you'll never have to. As for the article itself, it did an efficient enough job in less than a page, but limited player character lizard men to being fighters. I'm not sure why the more interesting options like Shaman or 
which doctors were restricted to being NPCs. At least it did have a great Ian McKay illustration of a lizardman emerging from a swamp, spear in hand. Julian May's The Many Coloured Land and The Golden Talk hold the dubious position of being the oldest books on my bookshelf that I still haven't got round to reading. Paul Harden was clearly not as lazy as me, as in Creatures in Exile, issue 51's Fiend Factory column, he examined the two alien races from the novels, the Fervalug and the Tanu. They were very well conceived, both with interesting powers. The Fervalug had a body weaponry, giving them the ability to assume a horrific illusionary appearance, while the Tanu had various psionic powers, often enhanced by talks, potentially potent magic items, also given good attention in the article. Despite being only two pages long, it packed plenty of flavour and was nicely illustrated by John Mould. Reading the article again, it was easy to see how these races could be used in a game and sparked a few good ideas. Maybe I should finally give those books a try. David Eddings, the Belgariad, was given AD&D makeover by Peter Ransom in issue 56, describing it as an almost ready-made D&D campaign world. He provided a bit of high-level background before delving into the statistics for various creatures and personalities. We had two effective monsters, an ape-like predatory Algroth and the unliving murderous Mudmen, the dormant evil god Torak, this being AD&D, so the stats included hit points for a god, and the powerful shape-shifting sorcerer Balgarath. Peter Ransom even packed into scenario outlines to the bargain, all good fun, although as this was inevitably the case given the brevity of the article, you get much more out of it if you read the books and were familiar with the background. As an added bonus, there was even a map, complete with a competition. Solve a riddle to find the treasure. The prize? Why, a full set of David Eddings books, of course. The next issue's Fiend Factory was given over to the Magipore Monsters, as Robert Silverberg's novels Lord Valentine's Castle and the Magipore Chronicles were mined for monsters by Graham Drysdale. Silverberg is another author I've not read. My geek credentials are really beginning to slip. But I know he was a favourite of Dirk, Blythe and Ed of the Armchair Adventurers back in the day. An exotic melange of creatures was duly delivered. Sea dragons, forest brethren, small forest-dwelling humanoid hunters skilled with blowpipes and trap nets. Metamorphs, shy shapeshifters with psionic powers. Scanders, seven-foot-tall, four-armed humanoids. Vroon, small tentacled creatures well-versed in sorcery. Hajot, obnoxious and batrachian. Grey rogs, a timid reptilian race. Phew, all were well-presented, though I'm not sure offered much more over a similar denizen of the Monster Manual. Again... I suspect that familiarity with the source materials added an extra appeal. 
Let's fast forward a couple of years when the brooding, ominous shadow loomed over White Dwarf. Graham Staplehurst's scenario, Things Ancient and Modern, took its inspiration from the works of British horror writer Brian Lumley, the creator of the quintessential Pope Cthulhu investigator Titus Crow, and the man who haunts the dreams of a certain good friends of Jackson Elias podcast. We looked at the scenario back in episode 16 of the Grog Pod, but issue 81 also contained a short story by Lumley, The Sorcerer's Book, set in Themadra, a Hyborian-style fantasy setting, used as a backdrop for part of the adventure. I had no recollection of the story, so I thought I'd give it a reread tiny print and fussy background didn't really make it any easier for my tired old eyes, but I persevered. It read to me very much like a Clark Ashton Smith homage, a tale of ancient sorcerer and his quest for immortality and the ambitions of his apprentice. Slight but enjoyable, required reading for the good friends. Number 82 was quite a momentous issue of White Dwarf. Not only did it announce the arrival of Warhammer fantasy roleplay, it also introduced, to me at least, the writings of Terry Pratchett. It featured an excerpt from the newly published The Light Fantastic. In addition, Ashley Shepard took us on a stroll across the disc world, promising AD&D adventures on the back of a giant turtle, not forgetting the four elephants... In keeping with the source material, this adopted a humorous, light-hearted tone when translating the Discworld to AD&D and was not overburdened with actual rules. Indeed, it was as much an introduction to Terry Pratchett and Discworld as a gaming article. It's funny reading it again, as it's such a familiar setting now, but at the time, the Discworld, Anchor More Pork, Unseen University, etc., all had to be explained to the reader. If you did want to theme your AD&D game around Discworld, though, there were plenty of ideas here you could use. Ashley Shepard covered the characters, naturally focusing on the wizards and the cutthroat nature of level advancement, and the unstable nature of magic. Spells with an intelligence of their own, cooped up for years in mouldering ancient grimoire and they could give rise to a chaotic, unpredictable effects when finally released, all for comedic effect, of course. Since this was an AD&D article, we had to have a list of creatures and personalities, dragons, trolls, death, and the Lovecraftian monstrosity, Bel Shamharoth, the sender of the A-7 plus 1. They were all given the stat block treatment. The article finished with a couple of amusing adventure ideas, one with the player characters temping for death, and the other was an investigation into disappearances in and around Unseen University. Good stuff, plenty to inspire some Discworld adventures. Another aside, I met Terry Pratchett once. During the late 1980s, early 90s, going to book signings was very much my thing, and I met quite a few authors, 
It was very exciting to meet these people in the flesh, and they always seemed to match my impression of them from having read their books. Brian Lumley cut a rather stern, imposing figure. Ramsay Campbell was the kindly uncle who nevertheless liked to terrify you. Clive Barker was a bona fide rock star. Ian Banks seemed to bubble over with ideas and enthusiasm. And Terry Pratchett? Well, he wasn't quite the global phenomena when I met him, but his star was very much in the ascendancy. Yet, he seemed to have time for everyone he met. Charming and funny. It was clear that he was having an absolute ball and he wanted to share the fun with you. Such a talent. So sorely missed. We started with Jack Vance, so we'll end with him as well. Issue 93, September 1987, as White Dwarf entered the brave new era of Chaos Spiky Bits. The red and feeble sun had finally set on AD&D articles in the magazine. One of the very last published was Simon Nicholson's Vance's Evocation of Arcane Delight. This was a thorough deconstruction of Vancean magic, examining the various constituent elements of magic portrayed in the Dying Earth stories, and, if nothing else, served as a useful primer if you've never read Vance. Simon Nicholson emphasised the style and atmosphere of the Vancean spells over and above their rather prosaic AD&D and RuneQuest counterparts. The wonderful spell names, suffused with wit and panache of Vance, lifted magic above the mundane, making it both a marvel and, at the same time, something to be feared. He examined the risks of binding the supernatural servants to aid his magic, cheekily reminding us that Kugel's saga featured a demon named Pulsifer, and the dangers of spells backfiring. He had no truck with AD&D saving throws against spells, preferring that the players should role-play their way out of potentially hazardous encounters with powerful wizards. Ah yes, wizards. A Vancian approach could improve the vanilla AD&D magic user no end. A personal style was vital for a Vancian wizard. They needed to cultivate a distinct idiosyncratic image. As slaves to their ego, wizards should be feared for their magical prowess. No weapons allowed. A wizard using a sword, as if. An over-the-top name was also a must. Taken as a whole, the article served as a celebration of the distinctive flavour of the Dying Earth stories and did a credible job of providing ideas for tweaking AD&D so that it better lived up to its billing of featuring Vancean magic. You couldn't help but come away from this feeling a little bit inspired, determined to pour some colour and vivacity back in your AD&D game. So there you have it. As Jack Vance himself, sort of, put it, what great articles lie in the dust, what gorgeous features have vanished into the buried ages what marvellous creatures are lost past the remotest memory. Nevermore will there be the like. Hello, my name is Andy Stimson, aka Stimbot5000 on Twitter, 
and I've been a gamer for around 37 years. In about 1983, in a grand old house down Victoria Avenue in Hull, my friends Alex and Dan introduced me to the concept of role-playing games. By this point, I'd already been sucked into fighting fantasy books by The Warlock of Firetop Mountain and The Forest of Doom, but I hadn't found my way into the greatest of hobbies yet. Alex and Dan were already playing AD&D with some older friends from down the road, and they wowed me with tales of their adventures, recited as though they were absolutely real and vivid. So to my 11-12 year old head, it sounded wonderful. So, one afternoon, we rolled up RuneQuest characters. At the time it seemed so involved in esoteric it instantly drew me in. I was already reading Moorcock and Howard thanks to my granddad, but this was like being on the inside of the machinery. The game started. Alex described the back streets of a dark foreboding fantasy city. And ten minutes later, my arm had been cut off and we ended up buggering off to park on our bikes. It was a bit shit to be honest, but... It gave me a taste, and before long, I had my first AD&D character. A first-level magic user with a charisma of three. The older lads had been playing for a while, and were pretty decent dungeon masters. We played every weekend for around a year, but then the group disbanded for reasons I can't really recall. Maybe people moving away, or maybe it was the time we got rowdy and Hugh Lutley put his arm through a panel window in the front door and had to go to hospital. His man was well pissed off, so that was the last time we ever gamed in that house. And that was around 1984 or 5. Imagine my surprise then when last year, over 35 years later, my cousin picked up a few old dog-eared modules for me from a charity shop, only about 300 yards from that house. The small pile included Dungeon Module A2, Secret of the Slaver's Stockade. And when I opened it, I found the names of our group written above the pregens in pencil. That's real treasure. I played Elwita, a 6th level dwarf fighter. After the breakup of that group, my mate Tom and I played on one-to-one for a couple of years. I played a half-elf fighter magic user. At this point, despite having had the Hobbit read to me in my sister's by my mama's nippers, I didn't really get elves. And when it came to naming conventions, Tom said they would have names like Swift River Green Tree, or something like that. Thus, Big Rod Thicksperm was born. He conquered evil wizards, reared a direwolf to go on adventures with him, bought a massive house and filled it with traps to foil his enemies, and generally smart evil. But eventually, the wolf retired, then Big Rod, and by 1987 we were immersed in other games like Call of Cthulhu and Twilight 2000. Twilight 2000 in particular worked for me, as my players over the years will testify. I'm much happier running low-powered games with characters picking weevils out of biscuits and narrowly avoiding death at the hands of weirdos and desperate diseased nomarchs, and this has carried over right to the modern day. My last game is one of my own devising a hack of the brilliant Barbarians of Lemuria by Simon Washburn, which I called After the Starfell, a tale of fairly useless, unheroic and generally quite cowardly poets in 1795, trying to negotiate their way from witnessing the very public suicide of crap rhymer Udo Dirkschneider at Poetry Night at the Moon and Fennig to discover the darkness behind the disappearance of his father, a local priest, all against a background of what is essentially the colour out of space mashed up with The Year Without a Summer. It's been great fun, although the episodes have been interrupted by gaps of several months. But Barbarians of Lemuria is just a light level of crunch for me. 2d6 versus a target number with a few variables to throw in to make it interesting. As a system, it's amazingly versatile and hackable too, and the players, a combination of old grogs and relative newcomers, all preferred it to D&D, the system that I'd been running previously, D&D 5e that is. For my everything... Given the subject of my podcast, I suppose it really should be one of the Moorcock RPGs like Stormbringer, in any of its myriad editions, or Hawkmoon. To be honest though, they've never really done it for me. 
apart from laughing at Divantark and Staplock, I've just never really clicked with them, with the possible exception of Darkseid's Corum supplement for Elric, exclamation mark, which I do like, but I've never got round to running. Perhaps sometime soon. Finally, though, my everything inevitably has to be Call Cthulhu. Not necessarily because it's the best game, and not necessarily because I'm a Lovecraft mark. It's just that, for whatever reason, I always come back to it. I still have my second edition box set, and, with the exception of the GW third edition hardback my friends had that fell to bits under a heavy sneeze, I've continued to stay up to date with every revision. It's inspired some of my favourite writing by some of the best authors in the field. In Hull, about 1990, we had a Virgin Megastore that had a fabulous RPG section. Up until that point, we'd only ever had a series of failed game stores run badly by hobbyists, which is why I never managed to get a complete set of Tortured Souls magazine back in the 80s. They spent too much time smoking drum and entertaining their friends, weirdly called things like Mr. Creek. Although, to be fair, I shouldn't really knock Mr. Creek. He photocopied a load of Phoenix Command weapon supplements for me that I never used, because Phoenix Command was ridiculous, but I did like the pictures of the guns. Anyway, in the Virgin Megastore, I found issue 5 of The Unspeakable Oath. It was unlike anything by the usual publishers, and it introduced me to the brilliant and well-ahead-of-its-time work of Dennis Detweiler, John Scott Tynes, and Mark Morrison, and had striking, deeply disturbing cover art by Blair Reynolds. It was wonderful, and low-tech and rough-to-the-touch, like a fanzine. Issue 6 included an overhaul of elements of Call of Cthulhu 5th edition. The first example I can remember of seeing a campaign for him for Call of Cthulhu in the shape of Thomas Hart's Randolph Pierce Foundation, and an outstandingly disturbing cover by Reynolds. Issue 7 continued this tremendous run with more resources for Call of Cthulhu 5.5, and, and a foil for the Randolph Pierce Foundation in the shape of Kim Eastland's Last Dawn. This was all really great stuff, and it charmed with me much more closely than anything Chaosium was producing. More importantly though, Issue 7 also contained a scenario, Convergence, that would be the very inception of the game that's gone on to be a cult phenomenon in the hobby, the spin-off from Call Cthulhu, Delta Green. Around about this time I'd met my old muckers Loz and Neil for the first time. Our memories are hazy, for a variety of reasons, and there is some disagreement as to whether the first game I ran for them was Twilight 2000, or that first Delta Green adventure, Convergence. Either way, we had a good time, and we went on to play together for some years before, like most of the Grog Squad, going into deep freeze for many years. When we got back together, about eight years ago, to kick things off again, the obvious choice was called Cthulhu. We can all relate to a game set in the 30s with Nazis and sewers and strange tomes, but as it happens we went for far too much Atmos and got buggershit first on Manhattans and Martinis so the game was crap. That was my fault, I was running it. We tried again though a couple of months later this time with Loz at the helm. That went wrong too, although we do have fond memories of a drunken argument about whether a spy could parachute onto World War II Crete disguised as a monk with a fake beard remaining in situ throughout. Since then... All sorts of World War II themed spin-offs of Call Cthulhu have been published, such as World War Cthulhu, Acton Cthulhu, and we've had a bush at those too. And they've been responsible for the creation of one of the best characters I've ever created. Wrestler, turned occultist aristocrat, Lord Sugarman. Long may he continue to wreak havoc on Loz's meticulously crafted plots. Hello, this is Gaz. And this is Baz. We are genial, some might even say a funkular hosts of What Would The Smart Party Do podcast. Where you'll find a special blend of gaming chat, quality interviews, deep dive reviews, advice, war stories and the occasional splash of actual play. So, draw up a comfy chair, get a brew going and join the smart party. Level up your gaming mojo 
at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify and all other reputable purveyors of podcasts. Gamesmaster Screen! Hello and welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Efficient salutations, Blythe. Hello. That's not like you, Dirk. I'm with Blythe, and we're going to talk about Jack Vance and Jack Vance's influence on games from our point of view. You you were a, a, a reader of Vance back in the day, weren't you? Didn't, I don't think I read much of his science fiction, strangely. I don't know why. But certainly his fantasy, yeah. There was always that quest, wasn't there, uh, back in the day, trying to find a fantasy and science fiction uh, collection that aligned with what we wanted from role-playing. That's true. You would kind of look for fantasy um, and science fiction novels that, that you could use as a bit of a springboard for role-playing. You, know, you could tell oh, there's a good idea in here, and that's that and the other. And I always thought it was surprisingly hard to find, but Vance fit the bill. You know, he, he, he did kind of influence us. Yeah. You know, we had, we had a kind of strange, strange relationship with fantasy fiction. Um, I hope no booksellers are listening because... Um, Eddie used to have a bit of a trick, didn't he, with um, <laughs> with the books that he bought, where he would buy a book, and we we ended up doing the same. He would buy a book and thinking this this sounds good, this sounds like something that uh, will feed my RPG imagination, uh, and then found it disappointing. And he'd always read the first few chapters very carefully so as not to break the spine, and then take it back to the bookshop and insist that. It was his birthday last week, and he got two of these. Could he swap it for something else? And invariably, they would say yes, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you went to his uh, bedroom in his house, he'd have a line <laughs> of books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they all had the receipt as a bookmark. That's right, yeah. A, f- yeah. a few pages in. Yeah. Uh, just to... And you could you could look at his bookshelf and think, well, look, this the receipt on that one has moved beyond the halfway point, so he's keeping that one. But that one, he's a... He's a chapter in. That's still in the balance. That could be going back. Yeah, I did. I did it once, twice as well. It's a good idea, actually. You know, <laughs> it did work. <laughs> you buy you buy a book and the cover. There, there was a kind of covers, didn't they? That had nothing. Sometimes had nothing to do with the story inside. They had a spectacular cover, and you'd start reading it and thinking, well, "What's this? Something to do with the cover doesn't represent this at all." Yeah. I mean, people say you should not judge a book by its cover. But we did. We were young and foolish, and we did. Um, and yeah, you you would. Uh, this is disappointing. This isn't yeah. what I wanted. Take it back. <laughs> I think. I think as well because you're in that uh, role playing games mindset. You would start reading a novel, and you think, yes, yes, I can use this. I can adapt this, and then something would happen. You think, oh no, no, yeah, no. that's right. Yeah, you don't know that. No, it's stupid. No, that's not yeah. going to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jack Vance uh, in the 80s in the UK, um, his back catalogue was steadily reprinted by Grafton, who did really good editions of them uh, with great covers. And um, it, it was quite consistent. The 80s were an unusual period for uh, Vance in that he became prolific again, because if you look at his back catalogue, he's got an enormous back catalogue. But uh, a story collection like Dying Earth started in the ni- 1950. He wrote Eyes of the Overworld, which was uh, in 1966. And then he had to wait until um, the, the mid-80s for Kugel Saga. 
So there was like quite a significant gap between the different volumes. And you could say the 80s when he was uh, publishing stories, they, they were his best work at the time. Leoness certainly feels like his kind of um, most solid work that he did. Yes. I think it does have a kind of... Most complete. Kind of, yeah, complete and has a, just has a kind of weight to it, I think. I was uh, a YTS, youth training scheme. I'd uh, left school and I was working as a theatre technician for the local theatre as a YTS. And one day a week I had to go into uh, Withenshaw in Manchester from Bolton uh, to go on a course. And I hated going on the course because they didn't know what to do with us. So we were like these um, 17 year olds, 16, 17 year olds. It was run by Manchester Council. Kind of filled our heads full of health and safety stuff once a week. We were, <laughs> we were trained. I, I, I still think about it to this day when I'm cleaning the toilet. About mixing. <laughs> they condition you to clean the toilet in a kind of slightly compulsive manner. The mixture of uh, chemicals, so if you put bleach in with uh, chemicals at the same time, it can create noxious fumes and kill you. What, what's, hang on, what, what's the other chemical? No idea. I don't take any risks. So don't, bleach, but so put don't bleach put, down, don't put anything put, else in. Put bleach down in Tyler, but don't put mustard gas in with it because it can. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Well, that's sound advice. They used to give us um, lectures on... Um, VD and uh, okay, VD, honestly, VD, yeah, honestly, it, it, I used to go every you never mentioned this. Every no, well, no, it explains a lot. This every uh, every Monday, we'd have to turn up and you know, we'd be <laughs> talk about VD, talk about VD and <laughs> ways in which we could die in work by yeah. putting the wrong chemicals down the toilet, yeah. So one day I had um. The Green Pearl, Leoness the Green Pearl, because I was quite keen to read it after I'd enjoyed the um, the, the first one. And uh, I got on the number 36 bus, and the number 36 bus uh, from Bolton to Manchester is uh, an unusual one, is that it takes uh, over an hour to go- get there. Yeah, it goes around the houses, doesn't it? It goes everywhere. It goes through Swinton and Salford and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I had a bus pass, do you know what I did that day? I stayed on the bus from morning till the evening i went <laughs> yeah manchester to bolton again and i finished the book in a day um for that reason uh leoness has a nostalgic resonance mm. because i remember the place i remember the you know traveling mm. se- to manchester and back seven times in a day well i hope you didn't miss any any vital health and safety information that day yeah that might have been the mind mm. you i think ironically you know what i think Dying from a mixture of deadly chemicals down the toilet is, is strangely, it's a kind of vancy and death, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is. It is. It's a vancy and death. I think as well we need to mention that for those those who, who you know, for, for younger listeners, if we have any, a YTS was a, was a kind of employment scheme in the 80s when the land was governed by a heartless and incompetent Tory government. Yeah. Because those yeah. days are gone now, aren't Long they? gone. We... Yeah. Long gone. That's never going to happen again, is it? We can feel nostalgic for those times as well, can't we? Yeah, they're never going to come back. But right. that's a good Vance was. That was a good Vance was. That you, you were prepared to stay on the bus all day, going round and round in a circle. One of the reasons why I think Vance appealed 
was because of its relationship with uh, role-playing games. And it did mm. um, affect the role-playing games that I ran and how I imagined things as I played them. Because um, particularly like Dying Earth, it's um, structured as an encounter, isn't it? So it's a series of encounters, episodic yes. encounters. Yes. And the other thing that he often did was to foreshadow what was going to happen. So it would they were the the characters would be told a series of events that they would have to go to to achieve their goal. So it'd be explained to them by a, a, an NPC. Oh, you have to, you have to go and meet this person, hand them over some honeycomb. That once you pass that person, you go to this building here, and that yes, be, very, uh, very kind of task based stories weren't they yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. like like yeah you're right, right like like adventures weren't they they were kind of they were adventures google goes off on an adventure and then as as the as the encounters transpired and they actually did them they'd all go wrong mm-hmm. um that there would be it, it'd just be bad luck just like a game you know, you, you might, as a, a player, have an idea of, right, okay, we have to go through these hoops, but um, our fortunes are going to be reversed because the dice are going to tell us. That yeah, and, and, yeah, bad bad fortune, bad luck, and also I think Vance is a, has a good line in kind of trickery as well. There's trickery as well, isn't there, in, yeah. in, in a lot of the stories. So that's another role-playing thing, isn't it, that the game's master setting something up that seems like one thing, but really it's another it's yeah. a classic kind of role-playing thing, isn't it? It certainly had a big impact on gaming. Um, it's probably more understated than something like Lord of the Rings because it's acknowledged by Gary Gygax that um, Jack Vance was it, an influence. You know, we see in the, and we'll go on to talk about this a bit further, won't we, um, how Pelgrim Press Pelgrane is a creature that appears in uh, Dying Earth. The whole, um, the whole legacy of that is, was set up to create the Dying Earth role-playing game. You know, yeah. that, and, and I think I think as well, Vance. I always think of, of Vance as a as a sweet spot between Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, and Moorcock. I always yeah. think of him like that on a sliding scale of you know. Tolkien at one end that I was never a fan of, found a bit boring, and Moorcock at the other end that I liked. But whereas Vance can did held together slightly better, I think it was slightly yeah. more considered fiction than Moorcock. Yeah, certainly, it, certainly Leoness was. And although um, it was driven by narrative, there was an element of world building. And well, I was going to I was going to say that that's another that's another part of Vance isn't it and, and that's another thing that feeds into role playing games because the world is more important the setting is more important but equally he doesn't go overboard like Tolkien does Just he, cre- he he's a kind of sweet spot where he creates a world that feels authentic and convincing but, yeah. but doesn't go too far what I like about Dying Earth and Leoness as well is it shares that um, sense of doom Mm. so a pre-apocalypse if you will yes. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But both these places whether it's the sun is fading also within that you've got this um, slightly some nonsensical people silly silly people with the petty concerns yes you know? yeah that, that's yeah set of, set against a sense of doom the sun's yeah. dying in the dying earth and yet people are a bit petty and 
selfish and jealous, yeah. aren't they? You know, they don't see the bigger picture. The same is true of, of Leoness. It's going yeah. to sink under the sea. We know, we know that, but they're yeah. all just petty, power-mongering idiots, really, a lot of them. Yeah, and Casimir's ambitions um, to take over an island that we know of, the, the mm. Archipelago, yeah. that's, that's going to be destroyed. It's going to be flooded. And, uh, yes, yeah. And it, that's where you can see the influence on uh, George Martin, kind of the uh, thing with Game of Thrones, because yeah. he, he has an acknowledged debt to uh, Jack Vance that, you know, he, he, he was inspired by him and you can see the same thing can't you, you know the petty wars and uh you know uh expansionist ideas of all these different houses fighting for a uh, position when actually there's a great big uh, winter's coming there's a massive <laughs> army of undead bigger guns. threat than that and look at you all worrying about your own personal concerns yeah yes yeah yeah Okay, so I'm going to erect this screen in front of us. Okay. And I'm going to roll on this table in front of me, apparently at random, so we can uh, discuss uh, elements of uh, Vance and role playing. Okay, here we go. Uh, first up, it's 17. 17, and as I use the word, eloquence. Eloquence. Yes. Mm. So just eloquence transferring to games. It's always difficult, isn't it? Because, it, you know, it's the old charisma statistic, isn't it? Which is always problematic, isn't it? Do you force your players to be eloquent? Or do you just get them to roll a persuade or charisma roll? You don't, you don't persuade. You don't force them to hit someone with a sword. So why you, why do you insist? You know, that's always the problem yeah. with those kind, of, those kind of things in a role-playing game where you want people to be elo- eloquent, but... But why should you, you know? Yeah. So very often in uh, Vance's novels, obstacles are overcome by uh, the use of language, by the use of linguistic trickery, isn't it? There's a lot of, there's eloquence and flattery and trickery and that kind of thing. Robin Law's um, developed mechanics around that for Dying Earth, isn't it? So Dying Earth is really <laughs> essentially a parlour game based around Yeah, it's a, it, we've, we've played it, haven't we? We've played it. Yeah. So grub me. It's a straight, it's an unusual game. It wasn't what I was expecting, really. I didn't know much about it when I sat down to play it. And I, I think the first 20 minutes, I was thinking, blimey, what have I got into here? It, it's, it's the early, early version of uh, Gumshoe, isn't it? So it's at, at its heart is a D6 which determines yeah. whether you're successful or not successful. And you have a pool of points uh, that you mm-hmm. can use to build up your success or uh, to change your success. And one of the ways that you can boost it is by using a phrase or right. in a particular way so you can get a particular advantage um, by using but, but you have like set phrases that you have to get in, don't you? That's yeah. how it works, isn't it? So the challenge is not just coming out with a, a fancy phrase that everyone says, oh, that's that's very eloquent. Here's a point. You have eloquent phrases that you have to get into the game. To get the award. Way yeah. To get the award. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But fun, but odd from a yeah. role-play perspective. Like a lot of those narrative games that came out at the uh, beginning of the uh, noughties, it depends very much on player buying, don't they? I'm doing that thing with my fingers where you... 
Well, yeah, it does, does, yeah, it does, does require unbuying. Yeah, I mean, you, you can imagine uh, the game at, at Grogmeat went went really well because everyone everyone bought into it. And it was it was hilarious, really, quite a, quite a really good good fun, and and a refreshing change from a lot of role playing games. You know, it was very different. Steve was brave because you, I mean, maybe because it was Grogmeat, but you, you could sit down and try and run that and get players, and it could go terribly wrong. No, you know, hack and slash game that. To give people an idea of uh, what happened during the course of the session, uh, all the characters at one point or another were uh, strapped up, trussed in a <laughs> harness yeah. and yeah. Uh, sunk in a load of dung and uh, effluent. Well, you were, you were the mucker, weren't you? So you were, we were trapped in a castle and we had to be servants. We were trying to escape, but we were all forced into servitude. And uh, one of the jobs was the mucker in the cesspit. But the interesting thing about it was every one of us at one point or another ended up being the mucker but we were persuaded by other players to do it as, yeah. as a mechanical, it was like a mechanical thing, wasn't it? Yes. It persuaded as part of the game. Not, not you or me going, Oh, go on, I'll do it then. It was yeah. part of the, you know, game that you were persuaded to do it by the other players. Yeah. So that, that was very interesting as a very interesting kind of element to it. I think very unusual really, because you don't get many games. I can't think of any game really that I've ever played like that. To be honest, I'm sure there may be, maybe there are others that are out there, but I can't think of I can't think of one I've played. As I said, the first twenty minutes, I thought, oh, "What's what's this?" But then by the end of it, I thought, "No, that that does does feel like I've been in a, a Jack Vance short story. It does does feel like that, you know? It does work very very well." I'd go so far as saying it was uh, my favourite uh, convention game that I've ever done and that's, yeah, that's yeah, something because yeah. at the time i was being distracted by lots of other things of being an organizer of an event but <laughs> my head was in a jack van short story and i was a character in it and that's you can't say better yes. than that really yeah and, and it's nice to sit down at a convention or anywhere and play a, a role-playing game where you're fighting monsters in the conventional way that that's good fun but it's also nice to do things that are, that are not like that. And that game was that. It was like a bit of a breath of fresh air, wasn't it? And I don't mean this in a disparaging way about the game, but it has a strong novelty value, I think. Yeah. It's, and it's, not, a, it's not a game. If, some, if somebody said, if, if Mrs. Dirk said, well, we've been, lock, we've been locked down for a long time now, um, I think I want to try one of these role-playing games that you talk about. That's not the game you'd start with, is it? Is it is it though? Because I think conceptually, it's probably somebody who doesn't have the baggage that we carry mm, around yeah, it. And, and if if you read the rule book, it is very much pitched towards people not not necessarily people who would conventionally uh, play role playing games. It's not. Yeah, maybe. It, yeah, it, maybe it, that's it, why I've been going. That's why I've been going wrong all these years with uh, Mrs. Bly there. We're trying, yeah. trying to get to fight monsters in dungeons. Really, to be, really, what, what's, be eloquent. <laughs> what, she, what she really wants to do is up to her neck in uh, dung being lowered by a harness. Well, what so, she, I think what she really wants to do is the satisfaction of persuading me to be up to my neck in dung. <laughs> Maybe that would be the appeal. Yeah. Now, come to think of it, where do I, mean, I get hold of a copy? I think she'd, she'd buy into that. The rules, if you read them, are very conscious that you're going to be put in situations as a character, mm. like vanishing characters, 
it removes agency somewhat and it and it kind of pleads with you in point points to say try to enjoy it you yes know, well it, it, well, it, it does that's what i mean it did it did remove agency because yeah you know, it's like it's like a constant charm person being cast on people all the time it's not it's not yeah. charm person because it's about persuasion and eloquence and trickery but yeah it, it does that sense of you know the you don't want to do this, but you're going to do it. It refers to those complications that we refer to as reversals. You might find yourself in a, a particular uh, high point that could, that could be quickly reversed. And uh, yes. that's certainly what we yeah. saw. Yeah, And was, yeah, it was. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Towards the end, I think we were all trying to escape, weren't we? And was it one, one person had to be the mucker and you knew they weren't going to get out. Yeah. And there was this com- rapid exchange of who had that job. It was passed from pillar to post, wasn't it, around the table. Like, it's that kind of weird Russian roulette of sorts, wasn't it? <laughs> Someone's going to end up stuck there. Aha, it's you. Oh, God, no, it's me. Oh, I'm going to run it. Oh, no, it's you. <laughs> and, and, and the uh, defeat was uh, based on some pettifoggery uh, around a contractual arrangement with the uh, mucker that we were able to nullify and uh, convince... <laughs> right yes yeah yeah not a sword not a sword was drawn <laughs> and yeah it was very exciting yeah uh, so right let, let's have a look at these taglines so these as you say are vanishing expressions that yes. you can draw during the game and it once you deploy them effectively and relevantly in context you can score a bonus there's one, there's one in particular that uh, I could deploy throughout this podcast. Go on, then. Which is, which is, I am at worst five percent responsible. <laughs> I, I'd like that for the record. I am at worst five percent responsible. Well, I, I reject your argument on haberdasheric grounds. <laughs> Here's another one. Go on. I hate to think what I will remember next. <laughs> I should apply to you, you and your comments about VD. From which of you wafts this fetid reek of pessimism? <laughs> this, this is my favourite. Are you ready? Do you want towels with that? <laughs> Where does that come into, uh, Jack Vance? I think. Uh, bit of well, I don't ad- think it's very Vancean, but but I suppose in the context of the game that we were all in servitude in a in a sort of hotel stroke castle, that it's quite easy to drop that one in, isn't it? Our adversity deepens, but we still have brandy. <laughs> Indeed, or oh, Elvis mm. juice. As formulator of the strictures, I am naturally exempt. So let's uh, roll on the roll on the table again. Okay, okay now we're up to uh, nineteen, and nineteen is Vancian magic. Now, mm. as role players, um, you hear this term, don't you? Vancian magic. Yes, particularly relevant to D and D, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, um, supposedly has a Gygaxian Vancian magic That's system. Right. Yes. It's quite controversial for some people, isn't it? Well, you often find, my experience of, of the debate is often people say, oh, he's stupid, isn't it? D&D magic. All that remembering spells and then forgetting them. And, and people who like it always go, oh, yes, but it's Vancian, isn't it? It's like Jack Vance. As if that then justifies it <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> enough like a, it seems like advancing magic's real it's got always based on real magic then is it oh well fine carry on but the spells themselves don't feel very advancing do they in, 
you know, oh. maybe some do. Maybe take a tensor's floating disc. That, that has a sort of advancing quality to it, doesn't it? I think, you know. And it's a bit like we said in the D&D episode, way back in episode six, that this is a game that's tearing itself apart by trying to be balanced, you know, balancing out the classes. And I've got a quote here from uh, Gary Gygax, okay? To my way of thinking, the concept of the spell itself being magical, its written form carried the energy, seemed perfect way to balance the mage against other types of characters in the game. So the whole thing of it wasn't necessarily that I like the idea of Jack Vance's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a game game balance thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a picaresque uh, magic system that you know can do eccentric things. It, that's not what drew him to the magic. It's just a thought of, oh yeah, the idea of uh, they've got one use of it means that yeah. they're not they're not going to throw the balance yeah, and, in the pan. And that's and that's why beyond that idea, it's not very Vancian. We never really played D anD D in a Vancian way. I think RuneQuest was slightly different. We, we did play RuneQuest in that way. It, it influenced our games of RuneQuest more than it influenced our games of D&D. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because it it could. Yeah, you're right, because RuneQuest um, has that flexibility because it doesn't have the classes and the percentages as well because that's the how our muscle memory works. And that's yeah. why I've enjoyed go into this uh, uh, Mithras game of Leoness. I think five years ago when we started the podcast, we were very enamoured with Mithras and we've kind of moved away from it, haven't we, over the period because of new, new things yeah. captured our imagination. Well, I think Mithras was the first, The first of, uh, although it's very similar to RuneQuest, um, it, it's different in, in, other, in lots of other ways. It, it, it was the first kind of newfangled game we got into, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. And and what we liked about it, I remember I was talking about it, is the way that it has, it's an attempt. And maybe we never got it working um, particularly well so far, it, but it's an attempt to try and combine a, a mechanical approach to magic while at the same time having a narrative and interesting approach. Mm-hmm. And I think with this Leoness game, it kind of works. It kind of works because on the one hand, you've got the fairy magic, which is um, like hedge magic. It's a bit mischievous. And yeah. in some, some ways, it, in many ways, it, it can be quite useless, you know, like turning milk sour. Um, but I think in, you, in, in, when you're in the game that you played, um, yeah. you had a, a, the ability to dance, didn't you? And send people well, yeah, I, 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 that was it. I, I played a character who was an old lady. She was an old lady, wasn't she? She was like an yeah. old hermit lady who who had this spell that could make people leap in the air. Yeah, I could just that, that's a mischievous spell of like a fairy magic spell that fairies would cast on people to make them dance and leap in the air for a laugh. And that idea that they fancy it, but also the idea that challenging you to can you put that to use? Yes, you know, can, can that be useful? Can the spell that turns milk sour be useful? Well, I would say in, in some game settings, absolutely not. You know, in D&D down a dungeon, turning the orcs milk sour will not help you. Yeah. But in a Vancian setting, it, it will and it can. Because, again, you, you go back to the idea of trickery and 
the, and yeah. social niceties. Yes. That kind of thing where you think, well, maybe, you know, if you wanted to embarrass a host, you could turn the milk sour and the host would be embarrassed and therefore yeah. for become more succumb to your persuasions through embarrassment. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. It, it challenges you to, to be subtler and push pushes everything downwards that the magic becomes more low key but that makes you think in more subtle and cleverer ways which yeah. once you start doing that you become more advanced you, you play it in a more advancing way yes you know? and the other element of the magic is the use of sandy stins so these are these like little demons who manipulate magic yeah. and as long as you can persuade them to cooperate and uh, they'll deliver magic for you and which is a little bit more powerful uh, in the game, but also that has an element of uh, mischief. Yeah. But what's notable about uh, Leoness is the fact that uh, there's Mergen's uh, edict, which says that, uh, amongst other things, that magic cannot be used to alter the affairs of people. So it cannot be used for political ends. And most of the novels are the idea of characters trying to push magic into that, trying to push the rules, trying to yeah, push against yeah. these uh, restrictions that merging the this wizard, this sorcerer has imposed, trying to see how they can break it. And that has got loads of narrative uh, opportunity, hasn't it? You know, that mm-hmm. is a, for characters to come a cropper with that. And, yeah. and just going going back to the last thing that we talked about, so part of the thing with Sandistins is to try and, talk them into doing your ends to try and work with them i think it deals with eloquence and the idea of um a social conflict uh differently than the dying earth game that robin d laws did with but to my mind it probably strikes a good balance between being mechanically possible so you've got skill now, haven't you, of eloquence. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you can also argument it with your passions. So yeah. if you've got a particular feeling or particular loyalties, you can bump it up. Um, so whilst you don't have the kind of parlour game element of uh, of dying earth, it's still possible to have a satisfying way of dealing with social conflict. Okay, I'm going to roll again. Yeah, I've got a 63 which is interesting because that's on a it's on a twenty sided dice, but I don't know that's happening. Anyway, <laughs> Are you sure about that. <laughs> Next is Vance in space. Oh right, yeah. Okay. Now you said you didn't do much of the. Um, I don't, I don't fiction. know why, but I didn't. I don't think I read a lot of Vance in science fiction. I don't, I don't know why, but it, I, don't, I just didn't. Unless I didn't, I can't remember. It was one of those. Uh, it was one of those authors that, as soon as I got into him through Dying Earth and through Leoness, mm. I just scoured the second-hand bookshops trying to find his uh, back stuff, um, and he did it, it the way that he did it. I think that if we'd have read it earlier when we were playing Traveller, it would probably have inspired us more because. Mm. Um, you know, there's this feeling, isn't it, that Traveller is probably based on, is more hard science fiction, like Asimov, etc. But it probably has more in kin to the um, Demon Prince's saga or Planet of Adventure. It, yeah, I think you're right. It would have filled in a few of the gaps and a few of the blanks that are there in Traveller. 
because you say like you say you think you say it's like Asimov, you say it's like hard science fiction, but well, is it? I don't know. Doesn't have any robots in it, does it? You know. <laughs> so I don't know what <laughs> we've been through this before with Traveller. It, it's it's a very patchy kind of thing, isn't it? Where you're not quite sure what it is, but I think you're right. Something like Demon Princes would have would have filled in the blanks a little bit, or at least yeah. given you more of a foundation to build on, perhaps. Yeah. And I think in his science fiction, this planet hopping and uh, encountering different cultures and the anthropology and the flora and fauna that he described in some detail really enriches those novels. And uh, what you find with Vance is that the plot is never inhibited by the world building that he's doing concurrently yeah. with the plot moving on or, or the characters doing particular things. A f- famous one of the things I, I enjoy is the fact that he uses a lot of footnotes to describe what's going on. And so, yeah, yeah he, does, like, he does. Yeah, gives yeah. the kind of weird authenticity, doesn't it? So if, yes. So if yeah. it's factual, yeah. And uh, Robin uh, Laws, after doing uh, Dying Earth, did uh, Gear and Reach, which... I'm gonna I'm gonna have to play because I, I really like the idea of it's a gum, gumshoe based game, an early one. I like the idea that the characters are motivated by vengeance and uh, you know going around <laughs> the galaxy trying to enact this uh, vengeance. I think it's a really uh, good i uh, good idea. One of his books was called Servants of the Wanker, which uh, yes. was always a source of amusement. Moving swiftly on and. <laughs> Okay, this is the last one, and it's food, glorious food. Oh, yeah. Because as people have pointed out, uh, food plays an important part of Vancian colour, doesn't it? So Yes, he's, he's, he's often telling you what people had for breakfast and lunch and dinner and that kind of thing. Um, we're sat in our homes, socially isolated. Yeah. It, this point is our annual birthday bash isn't it no what we'd normally be doing is going for yeah. an all day around manchester normally normally dear listener what you'd be subjected to now is some uh, jazz in the background in a yeah. pub yeah. <laughs> again your nerves <laughs> and, uh, a barrage of complaints vance liked his jazz didn't he so he did he was into jazz. jazz jazz and blue water sailing yeah it was on the back of his books, that, wasn't it? He came to point out that he liked jazz and blue water sailing. For some reason, we always found it amusing. Yes, I don't know why. And, and so I still do. Yeah. I still do. I don't know why. So in, instead of that, so what we'd normally be doing, we'd be going uh, for an all-day breakfast to line our stomachs, wouldn't we, ahead yeah. of a all-day drinking session in uh, Manchester town. Yeah. We're forbidden to do that. So um, <laughs> what I think we should do is for me to create something for us to enjoy by using these yes, tables. Yes, I think you should. So have you, you should. got have you got some dice available there? Um, I, I can get some. Hang on. I can get some. What, what dice do I need? Yeah, all of them. All of them. You'll need well, all the of full, them. The full range. The full. Monty, yeah. Fire away. I'm ready. Diced up. Okay, for, for our jolly boys eating. For a um, breakfast. For Go breakfast. On. Okay, you're going to start off with a D12. Roll a D12, please. Oh, a D12. That's all right, that. First yeah. off, the most yeah. underused dice. This We're is your, your preparation, this. It's a six. Uh, six. It's raw. It's raw. 
Interesting. Raw, raw food. Okay. Ooh, okay. Interesting. And uh, the main ingredient is uh, uh, a D4. A D4. It's a one. Uh, it's a raw vegetable. You've got a raw vegetable. <laughs> so far, it, it's worse than what we would be having in Manchester. Let's, we, let's, well, let's carry on, though. Let's, let's see. <laughs> let's find out what that vegetable is by rolling okay, a D100. Let's, let's, the D100. Good yeah. grief. How many vegetables are there? And there's quite a lot. Well, there's 100, actually. 100 vegetables? <laughs> yeah, 100, yeah. Mm, maybe there are. Yeah. Maybe more. No. Fifty-nine. Navy beans. Raw navy beans. Don't, we don't know what they are. How do you know what they are? I don't know what they are. No. Navy beans. <laughs> yeah. What are they blue? Hang on. <laughs> you're going to look it up. Yeah, well, yeah of course I am. Yeah. I'm going to stop there. Yeah, because you're going to have. No, I, I know that, but I want. That, yeah, I know. I understand that. I know it's going to go on for some time. <laughs> like doing things like this. The navy bean. Oh, it's a haricot. It's haricot bean. Oh right. It's bare beans. It's raw bit. It's raw haricot, unbaked beans. <laughs> God help you tomorrow. Now, oh God! Well, there you go. That's say what you only want to start your day like that. Okay, you ready? So, so you need to roll a d10 <laughs> to <laughs> chief accompaniment to the main course. So, I've got. I basically did so far. You got start raw beans. Imagine I've got some raw beans. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay, and sixth. Raw. Raw. Oh, come on, six again. What? I, I rolled a D12 and got six, and now I've got a D... Go on, roll. You yeah. Okay. You roll. Okay. So roll a D4. Three. Meat. So you've got some raw meat. Raw so, meat? Yeah. It's just uncooked food I've been given here. <laughs> kind of establishment is this. Roll, roll, a, roll a D100 to see what kind of meat or protein you've got. 27. 27. So 27 is faggots. Raw faggots. Raw faggots? So... Yeah, I should be getting better results. Go on, carry on. All right. Okay, so it's raw with... So you've got raw navy beans and faggots in a sauce. So do you want to see what kind of sauce you've got? Uh, Well, here's hoping that it's something palatable, because so far, so far I'm going to get food poisoning. Raw meat. Yeah. It's just like an uncooked sausage. Uh, eat that. I forgot. Roll, roll 20, D20. Yeah. yeah. 19. 19. Uh, so you've got, it, there's a, a thin sauce with it. Okay. Which is uh, flavoured with, uh, if, you, if you roll a D100. 53. 53 so the uh, thin sauce of uh, mastic mastic they do what put... mastic oh hang on oh yeah glue oh no what's the what's this mastic is a resin obtained from the mastic tree in pharmacies and nature shops, it's called Arabic gum or Yemen gum. In Greece, it's known as Tears of Chaos. Chaos? Tears of Chaos. Chaos. C-H-I-O-S. I don't know how you pronounce that. Someone will write in and tell me what. What's mastic used for? Is it an adhesive? Yeah. What on earth? What have you brought me for breakfast? <laughs> kind of establishment is this? It's, it's a raw sausage. 
raw beans coated in glue. That's what I've got. I mean, if this was the other, what? How? How terrible! Those are terrible rolls for breakfast, aren't they? Yeah. And surely there's better things on the menu than that. I could have got. That's um, your breakfast. That's and that's my break. My breakfast. Yeah. Um, no, happy, don't bother because I know what the answer is. Happy birthday, Blythe. <laughs> Cheers, Dirk. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Lot for the interview, and he'll return next time to face the Games Master screen. Leoness is currently available in PDF and print on demand on Drive Through RPG. It will be distributed by Eon Games in the future. If you're interested in the Dying Earth role-playing game from Pelgrane, that's also available on Drive Through RPG. The scenario we refer to can be found in the Revivification Folio, which features a cut-down version of the game as Dying Earth RPG formed the basis of skullduggery mechanics. The Hotel Grand Pordeaux is an extremely entertaining scenario and shows off the unique qualities of the game. The brave GM who ran it for us at Grogmeet was Steve Ray, also known as Orlanth R on Twitter. He's joined the Anchor community with his own podcast, Orlanth Rex's Gaming Vexes. It's a short, thought-provoking pod that so far looked at the lethality in gaming and the challenge of investigative scenarios. Steve is a great games master because he has that great ability to persevere with a tenacity. He projects confidence that you'll get through this, even if it's difficult. He resists the temptation to hand-wave the difficult rules or complexity. Instead, he takes you through it and you feel good about it in the end. I genuinely think that the Dying Earth game I played was the best convention game that I've ever participated in, and I didn't think that in the first 20 minutes of playing. Over on Patreon, we've released the first part of an actual play podcast set in Cyworld. Thank you to all of the Grog Squad for their support. I'll give some individual shout-outs to the new and returning patrons next time. Thanks also to Stimbot5000 for his contribution. Please check out the Breakfast in Ruins podcast for Moorcock insights and delights. If you're a fan of Moorcock, then stick around, because next episode we're heading for the post-apocalyptic tragic millennium. I'll be wearing my Gren Breton boar mask. Now stop it. You're making up your own jokes. Until then, adios, amigos. I seen you riding on the wall of death. You wanna know if you passed the test. I'm here to tell you.